hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Welcome to this week's show. We have a terrific program, and I wanted to update everybody with respect to this very rapid news cycle that we're having in COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, the public health response, and really all of the events that have occurred through uh, the course of time. It's almost as if we're in a time acceleration on the news cycles. If anybody is looking outside on world politics, on conflict, on commerce and business, everything seems, in my view, boring compared to what's going on with COVID-19. In the September um, uh, 17th, FDA meetings for the approval of boosters for Pfizer, I reviewed last week that we were expert presenters that made the case to the US FDA that individuals who elected to take the vaccine were more likely to die of the vaccine than take their chances with getting COVID-19 and dying of the respiratory illness. Younger individuals who elected to take the vaccine were more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis or heart inflammation with a Pfizer and Moderna vaccine as opposed to being hospitalized with COVID-19, the respiratory infection. And there didn't appear to be really any disagreement or pushback on this. Ultimately, the boosters did become rolled out. They are offered to individuals over 65, those who are immunocompromised, and then others that have a high risk of COVID-19 exposures, such as uh, healthcare workers. But it certainly wasn't compelling, and we've heard stories from more than one individual, both as a patient and on the pharmacy side, that the major pharmacy chains have actually been giving boosters ahead of any type of approval. So if individuals wanted to come in and get an extra shot, in fact, they could. So the, the vaccine agenda and the hubris to get injections of messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA, genetic transfer uh, technology into humans, the, the impetus to do that is so incredibly strong. And to overdo it, in a sense, way ahead of any regulations is going on certainly in the United States and elsewhere around the world. There appears to be no stopping this freight train. Uh, we've had the President of the United States come out and in a press relief release issue a national mandate for employers, but we've come to learn that this does not have any executive order or any law behind it. So in a sense, it's a press release uh, to further stimulate employers to uh, come down with vaccine mandates. We've uh, certainly heard plenty about employer vaccine mandates, individuals losing their jobs, submission of exemptions, etc. Now we've heard this week that healthcare insurance, employer-based healthcare insurance, uh, is linking insurability and premiums to COVID-19 vaccination, both for the insured as well as their family members. And this again strikes a new ground because the COVID-19 vaccines don't work in everyone. Uh, individuals who take the vaccine 
are equally as likely to be infective and carry high viral loads, so they're just as much of a threat in the workplace as the unvaccinated. And we have more and more data that the vaccines are not reducing hospitalization and death really any more than being unvaccinated. The only individuals who are proving to be the superstars in the COVID-19 pandemic are the COVID recovered, where we still have no credible evidence that an individual can get COVID-19 over and over and over again within the same person and becoming seriously ill. Well, I had been off of Fox News, the Ingram Angle, for over a month, partly because I was very busy, partly because of the news cycle. And when uh, the U.S. pullout of Afghanistan occurred, the news cycle did change. And one time I was actually in the studio ready for a segment shoot with Laura Ingram. And um, there was some type of uh, bomb that went off or a drone strike. And I literally sat through the whole program and I said, sorry, Dr. McCullough, we we have to let you go for tonight because of the fact that the news cycle has changed. And that's just how the media business worked. But I did have a chance to uh, get back on the show and get back with Laura Ingram, as well as uh, one of my top research partners and collaborators, Dr. Harvey Risch from Yale University uh, as, uh, in the uh, School of Epidemiology there, the Yale University of Public Health. And um, this was a great segment, so let me play it for you. Suspicion does run deep among millions of Americans for one obvious reason. The stubborn refusal of our government officials to acknowledge the obvious, that natural immunity from prior COVID exposure is long-lasting and durable across variants. We don't know how long that natural immunity lasts, and that's going to be a big question mark in terms of future surges. Those who are banking on the immunity offered by infection to protect them are going to eventually need to get vaccinated to sustain that immunity. In a few moments, our actual experts will tell you why those experts that you just heard were off base. But suffice it to say, studies from the prestigious Cleveland Clinic and one Israeli study of 758,000 people, they're either dismissed by these folks or ignored altogether. In fact, according to that Israeli uh, report, natural immunity is far superior, 27 times better than the protection afforded by the vaccines against symptomatic infections. Back in mid-September, Sanjay Gupta raised the issue finally with Dr. Doom and Gloom, Anthony Fauci. I get calls all the time. People say, I've already had COVID, I'm protected, and now the study says maybe even more protected than the vaccine alone. Should they also get the vaccine? How do you make the case to them? You know, that's a really good point, Sanjay. I don't have a really firm answer for you on that. That's something that we're going to have to discuss regarding the durability of the response. Wait, wait, discuss? What about the durability of the vaccine? That, that wasn't necessarily proven before that was mandated for businesses and recommended by the government. We're still waiting his discussion. Come on, Tony. Joining me now is Dr. Peter McCullough, internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and Harvey Risch, Yale School of Medicine, epidemiologist. Dr. McCullough, the rejection of clear science early on in this pandemic, uh, it was so obvious to me as a non-medical professional, because I have people like you guys and other really smart people who are not political uh, advising uh, the angle. Where, where are we now in all of this, given what we know is true and untrue about what they've said? 
We're following an ever-building story that natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable. And on the September 17th issue of the British Medical Journal, Block summarized in a wonderful report that using census and CDC estimates, 120 million Americans now have had COVID-19. Whether they're vaccinated or not, they've had the real infection and they have durable immunity. That represents 44% of those ages 18 to 49. That large block uh, has a negligible risk of COVID-19. They can basically release their fear of getting the infection again. It doesn't happen in, in any significant risk whatsoever. And there's six studies now showing that if they're needlessly vaccinated, there's excess harm. So I think that's a clear message Americans should take home, that natural immunity is really the backstop of us getting out of the pandemic. And Dr. Rich, of course, what what's being said uh, in response to that is, well, even if you had prior exposure, getting a shot will just give you a supercharged immunity. So what's the harm to that, you say? Well, well, there's the, the extraordinary number of adverse events and deaths that have been registered in the VAERS database, the hundreds of thousands of serious adverse events from the vaccinations, the, uh, I think, was it 12,000 uh, deaths that have been registered? It's, it's, it's way too much compared to every vaccine we've ever approved in the past. And, and there's the harm. We can't be doing that harm. And now we find out, Dr. McCullough, the punishment and shame being used by the Biden administration against those uh, who have chosen, for whatever reason, either prior infection or other issues, to not be vaccinated, uh, has spread to some states where we see uh, UC Health in Colorado says it's not going to perform transplant surgeries for unvaccinated patients in most cases. They said the purpose of the vaccine policy is to protect the health of its patients. Well, what if you, you need a heart transplant and you're going to die without it? I guess you're more worried about dying from COVID. I mean, what the heck's happening, Dr. McCullough? I can tell you, I'm a cardiologist and I do manage patients with heart failure and I'm deeply worried that that type of policy would backfire. We know with Pfizer and Moderna, the FDA has official warnings on myocarditis. We now have over 6,000 cases the CDC has certified as having myocarditis. That's heart inflammation that itself damages the heart with the spike protein, causes EKG changes, elevations in troponin, and worsens heart function. That's the last thing we'd want in a heart transplant candidate. So I'm fearful that if heart transplant candidates are actually encouraged to take the vaccine. Some are going to be damaged by the vaccine and, in a sense, remove their chances of survival to the transplant. Dr. Rich, uh, do you think we're close to learning more about what the U.S. government really knew about what was happening in Wuhan and yet refused to talk about early on in this pandemic? Well, uh, to the degree that we can get FOIA information out about the, the NIH and government uh, people who were involved in the process, then we'll find out. I think they will go to whatever lengths they can to suppress any of that being released. And I think we've been able, however, to put together very clear pictures of, of all the malfeasance of the, the company that, that developed all of the genetic tools for making the virus, patented in 2013, how those tools were used by the Wuhan Institute of Virology to, to create the, the virus, to make it infect human cells. And uh, we, this is all public information now. And so we know how this gain of function research was done and who did it. It's only a and question of assigning responsibility. Yeah, and uh, U.S. dollars going to uh, 
groups that were involved with the Wuhan lab. Gentlemen, great to see you tonight. Thank you. You can see that Laura Ingram has done a terrific job as a journalist in really trying to stay to the truth. And, and she does a periodic lookbacks on what various experts say. And I'm one of a panel that have been on throughout the course of the year in order to guide and how medical decision-making has become so distorted. So uh, heart transplant patients are excluded from clinical trials of vaccines because they're complex in the pre-transplant and post-transplant uh, epochs of care. We know that individuals um, who uh, have, a, have a serious enough heart failure to warrant a cardiac transplantation are on the very edge of survival, the very edge of survival. Now, I'm sure the thought process was if they got COVID, it could be a rough illness. That's true. But getting COVID, the determinism of COVID really deals with um, uh, various techniques of steering clear from other sick people, staying at home. Many heart transplant candidates are not out in the workplace. And uh, in fact, one can control their destiny in terms of COVID-19 exposure, as well as early treatment. So heart transplant um, candidates could be treated with monoclonal antibodies. They could receive uh, ivermectin. They could receive uh, doxycycline or azithromycin, certainly a full panel of nutraceuticals, move on to inhaled budesonide, oral prednisone, oral colchicine, full dose aspirin. Many are on blood thinners already. So sequence multidrug treatment could be applied to a heart transplant candidate if they got COVID and they could remain in their candidacy for a heart transplant. Now, if a heart transplant candidate follows the policy as proposed by the University of Colorado, uh, which is a well-respected heart transplant program, and that person takes the vaccine and they become the next person in the group of 3,000 who develop myocarditis, and many heart transplant candidates are young people with heart failure. So this could be a young man, let's say, with heart failure, and they take the vaccine, the Pfizer Moderna vaccine, which has an official warning on it for myocarditis, heart inflammation. I can tell you at the precarious levels of heart function that those individuals have, I can tell you with great certainty that any degree of myocarditis could be life ending for that heart transplant uh, candidate. So any program that recommends a heart transplant candidate get a COVID-19 vaccine with no randomized trial data, no observational data, and in the face of official FDA warnings for myocarditis, any program that does that is an example of how medicine has gone off the rails with respect to use of the vaccine. Historians, medical historians will go back and look at that and say how catastrophic the thinking was in individuals who came up with that type of approach and what type of duress the heart transplant patients must be feeling right now. They are living in hopes of getting a cardiac transplantation, yet they know their lives could be ended with the COVID-19 vaccine, which has official warnings for Pfizer and Moderna for myocarditis, heart injury, last thing they could uh, imagine. Now, if they took Johnson & Johnson, they face the risk of blood clots. Patients with heart failure 
are at an excess risk of blood clots, blood clots not only within the heart, but elsewhere in the body because of the fact that the heart is so weak and the blood is not circulating very briskly. So you can see that any choice of vaccine here is very hazardous to a cardiac transplantation patient. So this type of weighing out of the risks and benefits I just did for you for this case example, I don't see that happening for patients in American medicine right now. They are simply being told to take the vaccine no matter what the consequences and as if no one really cares what happens to them. Now, one could make the case that if the vaccines had compelling efficacy, that they absolutely positively uh, reduce the chances of developing uh, COVID-19, absolutely positively kept patients out of the hospital, absolutely positively removed vaccinated patients from being an imminent threat in society, that maybe the ends justify the means. But I can tell you, we're very, very far away from that reality. Recently, I gave the closing speech at the American Association of Physician and Surgeons meeting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on October 4th. And this video has gone viral. Uh, thankfully, I was on my A game. And I want to pick up on this issue of people being forced into a vaccine that may not work. First time I ever mentioned anything on national news that the vaccine may not work. Oh, my Lord. It was like a nuclear button had been pushed. And it wasn't me. It was Rob Mitchell on Newsmax. And Rob took the vaccine. He just happened to say that he thought maybe the vaccines wouldn't work the way we were commenting on Olympics. They brought Rob Mitchell on his knee. Actually, the, my former journal, The Hill, made Rob Mitchell formally apologize by hinting that the vaccines may not work. Well, now the CDC has data. We finally have some data flowing. This recent publication just a few days ago shows the vaccine efficacy as calculated in community populations, showing that Moderna, which is very different than Pfizer, Moderna's 100 micrograms of messenger RNA, Pfizer's 30 micrograms of messenger RNA. Johnson & Johnson is adenoviral particles. Americans should know there's three separate products. You know, I've been having all these secret phone calls over the last few weeks. One of my head was with somebody very important at the Federal Reserve. And we started talking about vaccines. And I said, listen, you're a data guy. I see you on CNBC. I know you like data. You have three mystery products. I can tell you right now, it's September. We have a winner, we have a loser, and we have somebody in between. They can't be the same. Even you admit as a person who deals with finances, you have three different products, three different mutual funds, three different bonds. They're not the same. They're not the same. This idea of take a shot, no. If you're gonna mandate a shot, tell us which one's the best. Tell us, what, tell us how to do it safely. So this idea of any, any um, employer that's gonna mandate a vaccine, you can better say which one. Let's see a careful review of safety of each one. We need to put the burden of proof on others, not on us. I have so many people, oh, Dr. McCullough, if you can just prove this to me. No, the burden of proof isn't on my shoulder. I didn't make these vaccines. They're not my... They're not my responsibility. They're somebody else's. Now, these data don't look too bad. 92% calculated uh, from the community for, against hospitalization. Pfizer, 77%. Johnson & Johnson, less. What's the caveat? They don't have data against Delta. The Delta variant's very different, and they did look good against the legacy variants. So these vaccines have failed in Delta. The Delta variant uh, came out of Mashtahara, India, 
when we got to about, uh, about 25% vaccinated with the Sinovac vaccine, it's the most mutated of all the forms of the virus. Seven mutations in the spike protein, and an additional one called Delta Plus. The UK tells us there's 20 more sprinkled across the uh, spike protein and nucleocapsid, and now the CDC is telling us through their publications. I could do this whole talk just from the CDC website, by the way. Barnstable County, Massachusetts, this was mentioned previously, two-thirds in congregate settings who get sick with Delta are fully vaccinated. Americans ought to look at this curve over and over and over again and understand, in fact, it was about this time our CDC director got on there and said, you know what, the vaccines really can't stop transmission. The vaccines can't stop a vaccinated person from getting the infection. The vaccines can't stop a, a vaccinated person from giving the infection to someone else. Okay, this is what emerged this summer. Data from the Mayo Clinic, 25,000 individuals, very good, they actually know the strains. Moderna holding out at 76% protection, but now Pfizer at 42%. Israeli health minister has uh, Pfizer at 39% protection. Remember a vaccine that falls below 50% protection and can't last a year is not a viable product on the commercial market. Pfizer has failed as a commercial product. And I think that is really form fruit of why Pfizer's not approved for boosters. Now it was suggested on the September 17th meeting that people over 65 and maybe those with other conditions would take a booster based on dead reckoning. They only had 12 patients over 65 who had taken boosters. Well, Israel's got a couple million people taking boosters, no signal that is having any impact in the Israeli uh, Delta outbreak. The Israeli Delta outbreak is bigger than their pre-vaccination era outbreak. And they use exclusively Pfizer. Here are the data. You can see here, 86% of the COVID-19 cases in Israel are fully vaccinated. You don't need to be an epidemiologist to understand the vaccines have completely failed with respect to Pfizer and its use in Israel. The CDC started telling us through May that the vaccines were failing. This report came out over 10,000 full, break, full break, uh, vaccine breakthrough failures in the community. They had 10% were hospitalized, 2% died. That didn't look good. After this report, the CDC said, we give up. We are not going to report vaccine failures. We want to see cycle thresholds that are below 28. Uh, we have, they put on their website that if you took a vaccine, don't get any more testing. But if you're unvaccinated, that you should get more testing. They started to make tables. The CDC started to do asymmetric reporting to start to craft a narrative that this was going to be a failure of the unvaccinated, a crisis of the unvaccinated. But the CDC data continued to come in, showing us just the opposite. July 26, they had 6,507 cases. And as you can see here, that we have um, uh, about 19% that were hospitalized. And sadly, um, we had 19% um, uh, who died. So we had a situation where, wait a minute, full vaccine breakthroughs, and they have a stringent definition. You must be vaccinated, fully vaccinated, wait two weeks, have, you know, this is a strict, this isn't the universe of cases, but these are solid vaccine breakthrough cases. Now we go to August 23rd, holy smokes, we have 11,050 full vaccine failure cases that the CDC is telling America about on their website, sadly, 87% um, of the deaths are over age 65, 70% of the hospitalizations are over 75. This is failure of the vaccine program in the group that we really wanted to protect. And nobody has been out front with the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, White House Task Force, telling Americans, seniors, 
that the vaccines are failing. What are we hearing about? The narrative we're hearing is vaccinate children. What about the seniors? Where is the public health prioritization of what's going on in America? It is astounding the ineptitude, the willful misconduct of the people running our public health agencies. It's astounding. Look at these data. Really? We're going to focus on California children when we have this going on? I mean, this is unbelievable. I hope this is being recorded. You know what? Record it. Record it. I want it. They're going to come after me. I want it. Bring it on. Now listen. On one sad day this summer, I want to say 20 media people and different officials in the United States had an identical talking point that 99% of people in the hospital were unvaccinated. On the same day, there was actually a collage. They actually showed everybody, including Ron DeSantis, disappointingly said it. Okay, really, really, how do the hospitals know who's vaccinated? How do they know? Do they check their vaccine cards? Are they checking first dose? Are they checking second dose? How do they really know? The answer is they don't know because the CDC has told them they don't have any mechanism to know. They don't have a mechanism to know. It is a basically by dead reckoning. Now we have two papers, one from the CDC, Havers, from the COVIDnet network, and then we have one from Fillmore from the VA with large-scale data through June. Answer, 23% of Americans hospitalized with COVID-19 have been vaccinated. This 99% was, again, a propagandized false talking point that was put out by those in position of authority. False talking point. The data are not there for this 99%. It's never been 99%. And as Delta, this was as Delta was shading in, as Delta continues to shade in, this number is going to go up. This graph shows us that our Delta curve now is on the way down. It's true. It continues to go down. But it was about two-thirds of our pre-vaccination peak. We knew from analyses by Brown and colleagues from Waterloo, Canada, that the absolute risk reductions from the vaccines were less than 1% from clinical trials. When, we, when the absolute risk reductions are less than 1%, it is impossible for a therapy to influence a population level number like an epidemic curve. Impossible, and what Brown predicted was correct. The vaccines have had zero impact on the epidemic curve. These vaccines were not going to be a solution to, to flattening these curves. Now, if you look down below, look at red. Mortality has been kept low. Now, mortality is really a function of treatment. And just one time I was on Laura Ingram. She goes, Dr. McCullough, isn't this a more deadly virus? I said, what determines whether that's deadly or not is whether or not someone got treatment. We have data showing that their treatments markedly reduce mortality. So it's not the virus that dictates mortality, it's how we respond to it. And fortunately, the early treatment networks, you just heard a state-of-the-art lecture from Dr. Rob, that we, there's a lot of things now that are done to take an edge off the intensity uh, and severity and duration of symptoms. That translates to reductions in hospitalizations and death. But by pushing mass vaccination, governments have created evolutionary pressures on SARS-CoV-2. And people warned us about this. Geert van der Bosch, Michael Yadin, um, uh, Sukhip Bakhtari, uh, uh, Dr. Luke Montier, they warned us about this. Don't do this. Don't vaccinate into a pandemic because we have a high prevalence of virus. It's like, it's like having a bunch of staph infections on your ward and putting everybody on a narrow spectrum antibiotic. Don't you think you're going to get resistant staph? I mean, they warned us on this. They said the virus is going to figure out these vaccines and the virus will find a way. We've always had a diversity of viral strains 
uh, in COVID-19, by the way. Delta has always been there. So has Alpha, Beta. They've always been there. So we have diversity, just like we have diversity in the room here. Everyone looks a little different. The ge genetic diversity is what we're supposed to have. What Neeson and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic showed us, as soon as we started vaccinating, we got to 25% vaccination, the diversity started to drop. That the number of different strains that the CDC was categorizing every two weeks started to plummet because we were starting to fool with Mother Nature, and we shouldn't do that. If we start to introduce a non-lethal, non-sterilizing evolutionary pressure. It makes perfect sense that the virus will figure out how to thrive in the vaccinated. And so that's exactly what's happened. And uh, that was just a, a, a segment of my uh, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons closing statement. And it's been widely circulated on the internet. You can go to AAPS online and uh, download it or view the slides that go with it. It's continuing medical education for those physicians in the uh, listening audience. If you wanna get CME credit, please do so. I worked really hard on the slides and those slides are your slides. Uh, they are the contemporary data that we really need to operate on with respect to COVID-19. Well, we have a terrific show tonight and um, I have two guests, one a physician, Dr. Wang, and he is from California, and he is an early treatment doctor. I've never met him before, so we'll get to see what he's all about in terms of early treatment and how he's navigated for his patients the issue of, of uh, exemptions for vaccination. And then on the back half, I'll have Miss Kim Witzek, and she's going to introduce herself. She is quite a lady. Uh, she's had a very difficult event in her lifetime that's converted her, that's changed her, transformed her into one of the most intelligent and bright young public health, um, pharmacovigilance, medical safety experts in the United States. Very articulate. She's testified before the FDA and before federal officials for over 50 times. And it's great to have bring her to the microphone so you can get her viewpoint on the pandemic and where we are with respect to vaccine safety and efficacy. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Healthy Cell makes a wonderful line of products, and I want to spend just a minute with you on REM sleep. Do you know Healthy Cell's product has calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four-stage human sleep cycle? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Through the phases, fall asleep easily. That component of sleep is favorably impacted by melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA, lowering the body temperature. That element is influenced by glycine, magnesium, and calcium. Deep lasting sleep, L-theanine, vitamin D3, and vitamin B6. And finally, creativity boosting REM sleep, 5-HTP, vitamin B6, and GABA. Many of us think we need to sleep because we're short on sleep, but we need quality sleep. So please consider Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. I have one tonight and I'm going to have a much better night's sleep if I uh, compare to if not taking it. So go to uh, HealthyCell.com and in the promo box, uh, type in out loud and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount off your first 
purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. This, my special guest today is Dr. Michael Wang. Dr. Wang went to undergraduate at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. He went to medical school at St. George's University in the Caribbean. He did his internship at Indiana University and then completed a family practice residency at the University of California, Davis. He's now in a private practice in family medicine in Northern California, and he has been an outspoken leader uh, and really a, a beacon of reasonableness and of compassion in treating patients with COVID-19. So Dr. Wang, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you for having me. Now tell me your approach. If I had a 65-year-old patient in your practice with obesity and diabetes, and they called you on day one and said, you know what, Dr. Wang, I got COVID-19. What's going to be your approach? Sure. The things I focus on, and not just about someone that's advancing age or with chronic medical conditions, I always address their severity of the disease and, and make a decision from that point on. So I want to address the three things that every physician should focus on. One is to stop the virus from replicating. Two, reduce inflammation, especially around the lungs. And I've been seeing a lot of COVID lung in Northern California as of late. And I'm sure there's, uh, that's true for many parts of the country. And three is to prevent blood clot from forming. So to stop viral replication, and it can be kind of challenging now, especially in our political climate. It's hard to find hydroxychloroquine. It's hard to find ivermectin. And uh, you really need to kind of coach the patient on um, working with the local pharmacy, explain to them that uh, the physician that's prescribing the medicine is not for uh, prophylactic use, actually for active illness. And then um, I, two, secondly, to reduce lung inflammation. They do smoke, they, they drink alcohol. I do ask them to stop, uh, improve their diet, more fruits and vegetables and rest, get plenty of sleep. And if they have asthma, you know, if they have diabetes, I want to make sure that's well controlled. And if they have any signs of, let's say, respiratory distress, shortness of breath, fever and chills, I get an X-ray, and, and I'll treat them with Z-Pack and steroids uh, by mouth and also in, inhale steroid if needed. And lastly, uh, blood clot prevention, uh, depending on their history, whether they have DDT, pulmonary embolism, and you do want to treat this pretty aggressively. And, and uh, the, the, the thing that you, every physician should, should try to address and, and prescribe is uh, oh, just over-the-counter aspirin, 325 milligram daily. And they have any other signs of uh, DVTs or any signs of pulmonary embolism, make sure that you have an in-person visit if possible. 
So these are the things I would typically address. Not every patient needs all of those things that I just mentioned. They're very mild symptoms. You basically just kind of encourage them to, to get healthy, get plenty of rest, ivermectin if needed, a little bit of an inhaler support. So you're right. So each patient's different. And I think the doctor and the patient decide together. Patients can understand that it's a complicated infection and it probably takes four to six drugs used in sequence combinations. Sometimes we have to pull out all the stops in order to reduce the risks of hospitalization and death. Now, the second patient that came into your office is a 45-year-old healthcare worker who's already had COVID-19 and they've already recovered. That happened last year. And now they've been uh, handed a health system vaccine mandate. So they know they can't get the infection again. And they're concerned about the risks of the vaccine. And they approach you for a medical exemption. What's your approach? Sure. There's no vaccine that would do better than their natural immunity. So I want to give them the reassurance that they should feel happy and glad that they have the best protection. Secondly, to address their medical exemption in immune systems are already pretty activated and, and very, very sensitive. And if this person got away without, let's say, cytokine storm or COVID lungs, and, and, and they did fairly well with the infection, you don't want to inject something that will further trigger the immune reaction that can sometimes lead to uh, cytokine storms and whatnot. So what I would say in the exemption letter, and, and Nowadays, a lot of places, if you were to list in detail what they are suffering from, they actually, the exemption will get denied. So basically, I just address and, and, and write a letter stating that it is not advisable for a patient to receive currently available COVID-19 because that may damage uh, his neurological cardiovascular system, increased risk of blood clot complications. And, and, and just a lot of reassurance, educations, and, and I will work with their provider if they need further clarification and I will provide it. I think that's a wonderful approach. You know, that's similar, very similar to mine where I provide basically a risk benefit type of uh, phraseology for the patient, just like I would if they were gonna have a, uh, a, a surgery or embark on a new medical therapy. And uh, I'm not saying, you know, they can't get the vaccine or they, can get the vaccine. I'm just giving my judgment. And I think that analysis is uh, very reasonable. They have no fundamental chances of getting COVID-19. Again, they can't be considered a public health threat. And the vaccines uh, in at least six studies that I'm aware of show excess harm when patients are needlessly vaccinated uh, when, they've COVID, when they're COVID recovered. And recently at the University of California at San Diego, uh, in a paper by Keener and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine, they demonstrated that the Delta variant actually generated more cases of COVID-19 in the vaccinated than the unvaccinated. Now, those proportions were different, but it's just proof positive to show that hospital-wide mass vaccination programs are destined to fail. We haven't had hospital outbreaks among healthcare workers in the United States, so it's just an ill-positioned type of approach. Dr. Wang, do you have any additional final words for our audience? Yes, um, I have spoken at our local uh, uh, government board supervisor meeting, encouraging early outpatient treatment. I think it's um, it's very, very important that if we see someone with a strep throat, we will never say, hey, we want to treat you with penicillin. Um, it, it's very important that every physician step up and, and treat COVID patient early. And secondly, uh, we shouldn't be just putting all our 
um, eggs in one basket, as, such as, you know, just putting so much emphasis on vaccine alone. There are many, many other things that can help uh, treat COVID patients and, 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 and prevent these about illness, such as, you know, I, I scan people's liver to make sure they don't have fatty liver that can lead to metabolic disorder. I, I talk to them and see whether they have sleep apnea. And, and, and I want to address everything, the root cause of why someone may not do well if they have COVID. So focusing on just one tool oftentimes will lead to undesirable outcome. Well, that's a great way to sum it up, and I'll let that be the last word. Thank you for joining us on the McCullough Report. You're welcome. My pleasure. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America about talk radio. This is a McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I have a special guest for the show this week. And it's Miss Kim Witzek. Kim went to uh, uh, Lake Forest University in Lake Forest, Illinois, and she received her bachelor's degree in advertising. And she was a young uh, advertising executive. And she had a series of uh, life events that happened uh, to her early in her uh, young married life that completely changed the um, trajectory of what she does uh, today in America, and she really is a force in America in the area of drug safety, pharmacovigilance, patient advocacy, and she just testified in the U.S. Uh, FDA hearings on Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine uh, boosters, and I was so impressed with her testimony, I decided to invite her on the show so you can hear directly from her uh, uh, her viewpoints and how she's come to form them. Kim, w- welcome to the McCullough Report. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me, Peter. Well, take it away. Tell us your, um, your story about how this happened, how you became positioned uh, to where you are. You're one of the most respected people in America right now uh, as a public citizen, and you have the stature to testify before the FDA. Well, go ahead and tell uh, the listeners your story. Sure. Well, first of all, I like to call myself the accidental advocate because I never went down this path. Um, But sometimes our life purposes choose us. And it was a personal story back in 2003. My husband, Woody, we were married about 10 years, was given an antidepressant, uh, Zoloft, for insomnia. He had just started his dream job as um, with a startup company having trouble sleeping. He was out. um, He was on the drug for a total of five weeks and I was out of the country on the first three weeks that he was on it. So I didn't see him changing. 
Um, it was August 6, 2003. I hadn't heard from him. I called my parents. Um, I was out of town on another shoot and I had my parents go over to my house and all of a sudden I'll never forget. It's a call that literally changed my life forever. And it was my dad saying, it's bad. It's bad. Woody's dead. I'm like, what? Woody's dead? And he's like, yeah, he's, he was hanging, hanging this guy who loved life. So that night, the night that he was found, the coroner, um, two clues were given to us. The coroner asked us, us if he was on any medication. The only drug he was on was Zoloft, and she said she might have to take it with us. It might have something to do with his death. The other one was a front-page newspaper article that said the UK finds link between antidepressants and suicide in teens. That night, Googled Zoloft suicide, and we learned that the FDA had hearings back in 1991 when it was only Prozac on the market. Now this is 2003. So almost instantly started going out to DC, meeting with members of Congress. Um, I did have a lawsuit where we got a bunch of documents out from under seal that we were able to use and um, lobbied the FDA, HHS, Congress to hold hearings. And we eventually got black box warnings um, for suicide on kids in 2004, young adults in 2006. Now that was going to be, I thought, well, that was my single focus mission. I, you know, mission accomplished, we got it. And I can go back to my, my other life. Um, but what I quickly realized is that it wasn't an isolated in, um, incident. It was actually a pattern and it's all about how our drug safety system works. And during that time it was, you know, Vioxx and some of those other drugs that eventually got pulled from the market. But um, so through that, I learned a lot of things. I like to say that I've got my own masters that I've um, be just from purely sheer um, learning and educating and meeting people. And today, eventually, I got put on to um, the FDA Psychopharmologic Drugs Advisory Committee as the consumer rep, and it's a position I still hold today. Um, through this time, you know, I met and I've been, um, I travel all over the world and, and have met people who are doing more work in the um, pharmacovigilance area and safety and harms. And I realized it was once I was in, uh, it was in D, um, at a conference in Amsterdam in 2003 or in 2010 called Selling Sickness. And every example was from the US, but yet there were only a handful of people from the US. And I thought, there's something to do with what happened to Woody, my background in marketing and advertising. It's a position I still am in today. But, you know, I never, uh, truthfully, I've been working on drug safety and I never really was going to work on vaccines. It wasn't my area. You know, there's a lot of other people doing good work in that space. But once this whole, like the COVID and the pandemic happened, I started noticing things from the beginning of like this interest of, you know, Pfizer and these fast tracking mechanisms um, to get the drugs or the vaccines on the market. And I noticed that there were a lot of patterns between the time when we were trying to get uh, black box warnings put on antidepressants and suicide and, and what's happening with the vaccine, you know, like a lot of name calling just by questioning. And I noticed the fact that when you can't question and ask to see data and, and like um, have debate, that something must be behind that. And uh, so that really got me interested in the fact that 
you know, you are an anti-vaxxer by asking questions. And I could see where this was going. It was like kind of a knowing of, I never understood why we wouldn't like look at treatments first, but there's a lot bigger market in a vaccine market when, you know, the whole world can be in it. So anyways, fast forward. Kim, when did you, when did you get an idea? that something was going on where you didn't see dialogue, you didn't see doctors debating things on efficacy and safety. When, when, can you, when, when did the light bulb go, go off on the COVID-19 vaccine program that something was wrong? I would say it was actually last summer. It was probably in 2020 when just this whole, what was happening with the shutdown, the worldwide, you know, in the beginning, we didn't really know what was going on. But then as information and as you know, um, the power of the media, I started watching the media. And I've always, you know, that's my background in my business. And I understand the importance of like, you know, or the power of fear mongering, scare mongering, um, and also the media kind of controlling the agenda. And I've always said, if you want to get a sense of what's going on, you always have to be watching and um, looking at all the media outlets. And they're all kind of telling the same story uh, as if they were working off the same playbook. And then I think it was during, uh, you know, obviously Trump, um, people in general had a thing with Trump. And, you know, I look back to the elections and, you know, the fact that you've had everybody was like, this is Trump's thing and um, fast tracking and this is horrible. And you had, you know, Biden, all the hypocrisies now looking back, but Biden and Kamala saying we need transparent process. We need to have. So like you start looking at all of that. And it was really in December um, of last year. I think that was the first uh, Pfizer uh, emergency use advisory committee that the FDA held. And I spoke at that hearing and just raised some questions. And then then from there, I just feel like then the election happened and and really watching it, it just seems like it's gotten way worse. And then, you know, it's interesting, you know, with treatments, again, I go back to common sense would say you would want to figure out how to help somebody who has something first versus trying to like do something preventing. And and when you started looking at these vaccines, and I say vaccines because they're using different technology and you look at you start looking like, what were the issues? And then, you know, then there's the whole idea of like, what constitutes COVID? Now, do I think it's real? Absolutely. But like, you know, a case versus somebody who's got, you know, who's really sick with it, that, and um, also looking at the idea that we didn't even talk about what we didn't even talk about health and like what can people in public like when all this is going on what could they be doing for their own well-being could they be could they be doing immune boosting um you know vitamin c d um you know whatever to help boost we didn't see that and that was always fascinating to me because if health is about wellness then we weren't doing our job so So that's really what you're saying is you didn't see the what I call the four pillars of pandemic response. I testified in the U.S. Senate in November of last year. So this was after your FDA initial testimony. And I laid out uh, for America that there's four pillars that one, we try to reduce the spread of disease. Two, we treat it, or the early treatment is far and away the most important 
um, pillar because the only way we can prevent a hospitalization is to treat before the hospitalization. We do the best we can in the hospital. That's the third pillar. And the fourth pillar is, is um, herd immunity or vaccination. And what we've learned is that there's a tremendous uh, risk stratification that's uh, possible based on age, but also on obesity, fitness. Um, I saw patients today, uh, interestingly, general patients with immune deficiencies do reasonably well with COVID-19 because COVID-19 is an overstimulation of the immune system, not an understimulation. So it's amazing. The Im immune deficient think they're going to do terrible with COVID-19, but in fact, they, yeah. they don't. And even pregnancy, pregnant women do better with COVID-19 than age-adjusted non-pregnant women. So, it, so it, it, what we didn't see is we didn't see a balanced approach. It sounds like you had sniffed that out. Mm -hmm. um, I had um, testified clearly by November uh, to America that there appeared to be an overt suppression of early treatment. There seemed to be a suppression of really any advancements in COVID-19. As you mentioned, there's nothing for community health. There's nothing for um, how, to, how to manage this. You know, we missed a giant opportunity with oral nasal um, hygiene methods. There are methods of actually reducing the viral load in the nose and mouth using um, povidone iodine, hydrogen peroxide, mm. uh, um, sodium hypochlorite, or you know, even regular mouthwash. There's things that other countries were doing that we, we didn't, never even came up. And at the same time, there seemed to be a either a, um, a direct omission of things to tell Americans or a direct suppression of treatment. There was an unbridled uncontrollable overpromotion of the vaccines. Mm -hmm. And from your perspective, what, what did you say at the very first meeting and what did you say at the subsequent meetings to give the FDA in America a different viewpoint? Well, I think the very first one was just this concept of um, what what is the vaccine? The fact that we're going to be out there, like what's safe and effective, and and the fact that you know sitting on the FDA advisory board, another one. Um, I look at all the drugs that are coming to market, and most of them are using fast tracking mechanisms. So I always see it as being not a lot of people in those trials, and eventually it's going to be given to millions. So my perspective, and then when I heard the Pfizer CEO say that for ethical reasons, we are going to give the placebo patients the opportunity for the vaccine. And I was thinking, well, why would they do that? Like we need, I mean, isn't that like what good science is and the fact that we couldn't debate. So I saw that. Then I started, um, and then I also brought up some points of, you know, I felt like they were using classic selling or marketing, which is what I do in my business when we need to get, um, you know, we want to get consumer demand or drive it, you know, you incentivize it. So the fact that we have this vaccine program and we are giving, you know, I think the first company that did something was Krispy Kreme and they gave a, do um, a donut a day for the rest of the year if you got a vaccine and then, you know, free beer, and then the fact it was in stadiums, and you had to give $100, and you had a million dollars for a, or a chance to win a million dollars at a lottery. I started looking at that going, something about that doesn't make sense as well. And then, you know, this last time about boosters, it was really about like, when is enough enough? Like the goalposts have kept changing, if you've been watching them from, you know, like, It'll be maybe herd immunity or, you know, when we get to this percent and then it became like, oh, no, now it's like everybody. 
um, mandates, it is, you know, it, it seems like we're not, what still is missing is that we don't have the debate from other countries and data, like data that we can trust. It seems like it's only one sense of data. And then you look at censorship, the fact that doctors such as yourself and doing really great work are now having to potentially lose their their jobs for spreading misinformation. And then that idea of like, who gets to decide what is misinformation? Like, what, like, who gets to decide that standard? And then, you know, so anyways, those were some of the things that I brought up. And, and, and ultimately, you know, I think that at the end of the day, um, when you don't have, you don't have control groups, why do we want to have everybody in the world um, mandated? And then now we're forcing mandates and the government is like completely doing a 180 from where we were, a, you know, when Biden was a candidate. And so all of this is just really concerning when at the end of the day, like we want to save lives. Like I always, and I have been contacted by so many people that have been harmed and they're not getting a voice. They're not getting a voice and they're dismissed as if, you know, we care more about like saving the one that's going to go to the hospital, um, which of course we want that too. But what about all these other people that are kind of left on their own devices and nobody's recognizing it and it's still so that's really where my uh that was my last kind of point at this last hearing is you know i had to make sure i gave a nod to my um people that i hear from and there are thousands of them and thousands and thousands and the fact that our fda and cdc no who, is anybody following up with them because if i was in charge of drug safety like I've always said, and again, I go back to my antidepressants when we actually brought all this stuff to the FDA and they said, it's anecdotal. And I was like, yeah, but anecdotes, even if it's in MedWatch system um, or VAERS system, that should be a signal. And a signal should be something that should be proactively um, and, you know, research or want to go, what are the connections? But so... You know, that's um, where I stand. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.